Welcome to this conversation. I'm Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Eric Stanton. And I'm talking to Eric Stanton today because he is a veteran, a long-serving veteran of the military. His story covers a lot of territory, and I'm not going to attempt to tell it, but in honor of Veterans Day, welcome Eric Stanton to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor and a blessing to be on with you and with your listeners uh, tonight and this afternoon. I just wanted to first off say what an honor and privilege it's been for me to be able to serve the last 32 years in the Air Force, Tennessee Army National Guard, and then finishing up my career in the United States Army Reserve. A little bit about myself. In 1988, I joined the United States Air Force. Active duty was sent to Angelic Air Base Turkey after basic training at Lackland Air Force Base and tech school at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado. There I stayed until November of 1990, at which point I was extended due to the Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Turkey was part of the theater of operation. So at the conclusion of Desert Shield and Desert Storm, got sent back stateside to where I went to the reserves as my active duty commitment was over. In 1994, after graduating from East Tennessee State University with a bachelor's of science in psychology, sociology, and political science. I was fortunate enough to be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Tennessee Army National Guard. I was a medical platoon leader and had the honor and privilege of commanding 32 soldiers at any given time that were combat medics. And our job quite simply was that if we were to get deployed or mobilized, that we provide medical support for an armored CAV regiment consisting of tanks, Bradleys, mortars, stuff of that nature. So we were uh, combat arms, if you will. And I had a thoroughly great time in the Tennessee Army National Guard, loved the individuals in there. Unfortunately, the promotion opportunities for officers at that time wasn't that great. So in 2000, I had to switch to the United States Army Reserve. And at that point, I got promoted to captain. And I was a, what we call an OCT, which is observer controller trainer. And what that is, it's quite simply the individuals that go out whenever units are training, we observe their training, we evaluate their training. Sometimes we even coordinate their training, but the most important thing we did, and that's what I ended up doing uh, once the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan kicked off was as we started training uh, not only U.S. forces, but co coalition forces that were going to the theater of operation, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, was called to active duty, working at First Army Joint Operations Center as a battle captain in Fort Gillum, Georgia, was there starting in 2003, was there for a couple of years. Again, First Army at that point had the mission of training all guard and reserve units going to both Iraq and Afghanistan. We had several mobilization platforms across the country, including Camp Shelby, Mississippi, but we had uh, mobilization platforms all over the country. And so got to participate in that. We also got to start sending uh, individuals forward into the theater to train our Iraqis as we moved in that phase of operation. But my major job during that time was, as I said, I was a battle captain down at the First Army Joint Operations Center in Atlanta. It was joint operations because it was Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines in there. It was commanded by a three-star general, 
a general that went on for a lot of um, fanfare and prominence in Katrina relief, a general by the name of General Russell Honore, Lieutenant General, three-star general. And so I and my, and my NCO that worked the bridge, we were there, we were his eyes and ears. We were his eyes and ears at that point. And as the information on the floor got funneled in together, whether it was training operations, et cetera, then we took that information once presented to us and funneled it up to the, to the general. We also maintained um, the pulse of the operations, whether it was overseas or stateside. And it was definitely a 24 seven, 365 uh, responsibility. We mobilized hundreds of thousands of individuals during that time. The number one problem that we saw at that time and has since been fixed was just overall readiness um, of units. A lot of units at that time were coming to the MOBE station and they weren't ready. They weren't med ready medically. They weren't ready physically and were turned back around and sent back to their home stations. And so after that, a lot of lesson learned during that time on what we can do better, what we can do as far as readiness better, stuff of that nature. I need to jump ahead a little bit because sure. when I was introduced to you for this interview, I was told that you're a lieutenant colonel. That's right. Yeah. So, so can better... you jump to how that happened? I mean, sure. Lieutenant Colonel's way on up the line, right? Yeah, absolutely. So worked my way up through the ranks in the United States Army Reserve. And my last assignment, I was actually a medical support unit commander as a lieutenant colonel. I had the privilege of commanding physicians, nurses, medics, dentists, dental techs, and then the support personnel that went through there. Our mission was we have no equipment, we're personnel. So our mission was to actively support, engage, and deploy wherever we needed to go to fixed operations in order to augment medical services, dental services, et cetera, that were going on there. We deployed at any given time from 2003 until my retirement 2021. We constantly had individuals either mobilized or deployed in support of all the global operations across the world. So my main goal as a commander was medical readiness, individual readiness, keeping these soldiers ready to where anytime they could engage and they could be deployed or mobilized in support of any of these operations. I need to establish before we get on to the kind of the heart of, of uh, the sure. interview is what are you doing now? So after retirement, I was lucky. That was kind of a, a being in the reserves. You also have a civilian job in the world. My civilian job is I'm an assistant professor of criminal justice and political science at Northeast State Community College in, in Upper East Tennessee in Bluntville. And I've been blessed to be here either adjunct or full-time since 2010. And currently, I'm also the department head of the criminal justice department and the political science department, where I'm blessed to have several good adjuncts to assist me in, in teaching these courses. Otherwise, there's no way I could teach them being, a, uh, being an Army One, so to speak. Roughly have about 200 students in the criminal justice department now, have about roughly 15 in political science. So obviously, criminal justice takes up much more of my time. At any given time, I'll also teach upwards to seven classes a semester here at Northeast. Um, a lot of my students are former veterans, or excuse me, are veterans, of, you know, former individuals in uniform, and they do very well. They do very well. Crim criminal justice, as you probably well know, is a paramilitary type organization where it tends to individuals tend to flock there that have that type of mindset. And speaking of that mindset. You know, it's important to realize people ask me all the time, 
what is a veteran? Well, the official definition, of course, is anybody who has served honorably for at least 180 consecutive days on active duty. But reality is a lot more than that. When we go to basic training, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marine, it, it doesn't matter. The training may look a little different, but the overall goal of all of those branches is to bust down your individualism, to throw it out the door, to get rid of the I mentality and make it about the we mentality, to show you that you're a part of a team. There's nobody in that team that's more important than anybody else, and you're dependent on everybody in that team. And that's the one thing that all the branches do. All the branches. Another thing that all the branches do is quite simple. We all have one mission on land. We may be in sea. We may be in air. We may be all that stuff, but we have one mission. And the one mission that we have is really simple, complex, but it's simple. And that is to support and defend the constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Let's go to where you started there, Eric. I want to ask about just what you said, the bust down the individualism. Because when I think of Veterans Day and when I think of veterans, I think of saying thank you for your service and feeling like it's so trite that it's an insult and understanding that what we ask of our service people is incredible. I mean, to take away your individualism for a group mentality and what does that do to people, the pain that we inflict asking for people to to de defend our constitution. What does Veterans Day mean to you? How do you feel about Veterans Day and people saying thank you for your service? I'm honored and I'm humble to be able to walk hand in hand, arm in arm with those that have served before me, with me, and those that will serve after me. The military attracts a special type of person. And when I say special type of person, it's somebody who is a servant leader, who believes in some, something bigger than themselves, that is willing, quite frankly, to lay their life down in support of our Constitution, in support of the citizens of our country. And so when somebody tells me, thank you, or, you know, happy, I appreciate it. I'm very appreciative. I'm very appreciative of that, that they're recognizing it. But I can't think of anything else that I'd want to do. I have been in service to my country and to your country for the last 32 years. And it's honestly the best thing that I've ever done. My fellow brothers and sisters that are veterans feel the same. We are in service just because we're no longer in uniform. We will be in service till the day we die to our country, whether that's doing community service, whether that's doing something, you know, outside of our, of our work or outside of our religious organizations or whatever, we are in constant service, even though we're not in uniform anymore, continue to our country. And here's the unique thing about veterans. We are a tight-knit group. Only 1% of the population in this country serves the military. 1%, that's it. We are a very exclusive club. And in that club, we have each other's back, no matter what. And when I say that, for example, whenever I meet a veteran, I may not ever met that person before in my life, but him or her, we naturally have a natural bond from that point on. Sure. That natural bond, does that come from the fact of just what you were talking about earlier, that you've all been through this together, that you've all had your individualism transformed into service for others? And is part of it, Eric, that nobody else can understand it? It is. It's 
unless you've been there, you can't understand it. Tell me why that is. And why you can't understand it is it's a organization to where you'd have to live it. Here, here's the difference. You and I are professors. We come to work. We do our job. We do the best job we can do. We have relationships with other faculty members, staff, you know, professional relationships throughout the day. And then we go home and we go to our lives. You go to your family. I go to my family. I do my thing. You do your thing. When you're in the military, you are in that uniform 24-7, 365. So not only do you work with those individuals, you live with those individuals, you eat with those individuals. But most importantly, when you get mobilized and you go to war, you are 100% dependent on that man or woman to the right of your, or left of you to be able to make it back home. You are 100% dependent. And we have to have 100% trust in each other. And we do. We have 100% trust. I know that that man or woman to my right or left has my back. And I know that I have their back. And quite frankly, I'd be willing to lay my life down for them and they would be the same for me. So unless you've had that opportunity and been blessed with that opportunity to actually serve and to be there, it just, it's impossible to ever, ever explain. Eric, do we do enough for our veterans? When I asked when I was when I found my way to you, it was because I asked a veteran if he would be willing to talk about his experience, and he said he couldn't, and he referred me to you. I, I feel like that we ask too much psychologically of these individuals who come back and are often traumatized and wounded, and what do we do for them? That's a very good question. I have a lot of brothers and sisters who are hurting. And I know the soldier you're speaking of, and he's hurting. He doesn't have physical wounds that you can see. And we have to understand just a physiological uh, understanding of the brain. A brain in your body can only be put under so much stress before it just breaks, before it short circuits, if you will. And the amount of stress that you go through in a combat situation, that individual you're talking to, he was on the front lines. 80% of the military is in a support role of the 20% of the people that are on the front lines. He was on the front lines. That constant level of readiness, that constant level of excitement, that constant level of, of, of just stress eventually breaks people down. So do we do enough? The VA, I must say, in my personal opinion, in my experience has been wonderful. Okay. Granted, the VA, like every other bureaucracy out there, has its issues. We've seen some of them across the country, but my personal experience with the VA has been excellent. The individual you're speaking of, his personal experience with the VA has been excellent. So what I ask the listeners out there, especially when it comes time for today's election day that we're recording this on, and is a time to, it doesn't matter if they're Democrat, Republican, Go to your elected officials and remind them that we need to continue to have robust and sustained funding of the Veterans Administration to support these soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines as they come off active duty and support them for life. PTSD does not go away. It might get better, but it does not go away. My Vietnam veteran brothers and sisters, they were treated absolutely horribly. Thank God now that citizens are beginning to, to look at that different. The VA's beginning to look at that different. And they're beginning to get their just compensation and the respect that they need and they deserve. But folks, just again, we can't ever forget our veterans because just because we take the uniform off, we can't leave the stress next to the road. I'll give you a quick example. 
a year ago when Afghanistan fell, another individual were hurting. They were hurting a lot because they had lost friends in Afghanistan, fellow soldiers who were frightened hand in hand with them. They'd also lost Afghani interpreters and friends as well, coalition forces. And when they lost them, they thought, well, at least we're doing something better. At least we're, we're getting a democracy, a republic formed in Afghanistan where girls can go to school, where women have rights, stuff of that nature. And when they watched the pullout of Afghanistan and they watched everything that they worked for just go away in the matter of days, they really start having issues. A lot of people really started having issues. And I even have friends who had suicidal ideations because they lost their friends for what? At least if they knew they lost their friends for a purpose, to make the country better, to make lives better, they could live with it. But the way we pulled out in Afghanistan really hurt a lot of veterans. And at the end of the day, it's tough, but we're here to support each other. And that's the thing veterans do also is support each other. We support each other no matter what. And again, it's, it's a bond. And I supported individuals during that time. They supported me. We all support each other. And, and that's just what we do as veterans. And that's what we'll do the day we die is support each other. Do we need more mental health services? The other thing that strikes me, and I've, I've known a veteran with PTSD, and the idea in that situation seemed to be, you know, my brothers understand, my fellow veterans understand, I'll keep it inside. Then in that situation, it was like a temper, a fuse that was so short and anger and that the anger was explained by because nobody understands. You will never understand what we did there. You will never understand what it's like to know that in any minute you could get blown up and die. And so I'm thinking the idea that veterans think they have to keep it in when it seems like what they need to do is let it out. But to whom? And under what situation can they trust someone? Very valid comments, very valid question. The answer is, thank goodness, we've had a switch in thinking when it comes to mental illness. And we're realizing that it's a physical illness, just like hypertension, diabetes, anything of that nature. So it's no longer, well, I'm crazy. If I talk about it, people are going to say I'm crazy. They're going to lock me up in a loony bin. So luckily now, guys and girls, veterans are willing to open up a lot more to the treatment teams and stuff of that nature. They're trying to help them. Now, it helps a lot if the person on the treatment team is a veteran his, himself or herself, and they've had the same experiences. Because you're right. Unless you've been there, you're not going to have those same experiences. And it's important for those veterans to be able to heal, to be able to open up and to be able to express their frustrations, express their concerns. I mean, it's the varying levels of PTSD. It can be anywhere from nightmares to people that get homicidal, suicidal. It varies dramatically based on the impulses of the brain and what the brain's telling the individual and the stress. It is it's it's very tough. I, I use this analogy. Think of yourself in combat. You're in fifth gear in a car going as fast as you can go down the road. And all of a sudden you return to the United States and you don't even have time to slam on the brakes. You have to just shove that car into first gear. Your brain can't go from fifth gear to first gear overnight. It takes time. It takes years. Sometimes it can never go back to first gear again. I, I have veteran friends that don't look at guardrails on the interstate the same because guardrails, especially in Iraq, is a place where they would hide IEDs. And not only would they hide them, but it would, it would create additional shrapnel 
when it blew up. So I have friends to this day that can't look at guardrails the same. I have friends of mine still this day that drive like madmen and madwomen down the interstate because they were used to driving that way in the theater to, to keep from getting blown up and keep getting ID. So it's, it's nothing that you can just turn off. So it's that robust support and having people there that truly understand. Well, is there a veterans center where you and your fellow veterans go and get together and kind of help ease the pain of struggling in fifth gear constantly in your mind and that you can share your feelings and experiences? Absolutely. There's a bunch of governmental organizations like the VA and others, and there's a lot of non-governmental organizations like the VFW, um, American Legion, stuff of that nature, where individuals can go and they can talk. But the main thing about veterans is, is, is it's almost weird. You can look at somebody, it's going to sound weird to, to somebody who hasn't served, but I can just look at somebody and tell they're a veteran. And I can walk up to somebody I never met. When did you serve? Where'd you serve? And the good Lord puts you in position sometimes where you need to be. I can't tell you how many times that I have been in a position where I've been talking, just met somebody out of the blue, never met them and just say, where'd you serve and everything. And they just open up to me and they're hurting and they just need somebody to talk to that day. Cause it's tough. It's tough for folks to understand. It, it really is. It, it's tough. My boss and I had this conversation here not long ago and, you know, I, I was just telling her it's very tough to understand what a veteran goes, goes through. We just have to have other folks here that can support that veteran in, in time of need. Let's just have you talk to people on this Veterans Day week once again. I mean, this requires such sensitivity and such delicacy in, in interacting with veterans when you with this background of what you're just talking about what do you want us to know what do you what can we say what can we do first off to all my fellow veterans out there thank you for your service thank you for your sacrifice to your families who also serve they might not wear the uniform but they served as well thank you thank you for your patience thank you for your understanding and thank you for your service as well but this is what I'll say to, to everybody out there. Remember, when you see veterans out there, some are perfectly fine. Some might have open wounds that you can see, missing limbs, stuff of that nature. Others have invisible wounds, PTSD. Just remember that these folks are willing to do this for you. They do it for you and me. So I can be a professor. So you can be a professor. So our listeners can do whatever they want to do. These individuals did it for you. And they'll continue to do it for you because they believe in something bigger than themselves. On the army flag, it just has three simple words. This will defend. Will, of course, meaning all of us, defend. And it's referring to the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States is just a piece of paper. And realize that's all it is. But in order to make it a living document, it takes people, in this case, veterans, to support it and defend it and for the foundation of our country. So that way you and I can build whatever house we want to on that foundation. So remember, veterans are the foundation of this country. And again, I thank all my veterans. And I want to say one more thing to all the veterans. If you're hurting, you're not alone. There's people out there that want to talk to you. 
There's people out there that want to help you. There's both governmental organizations and non-governmental organizations that are ready to help. You won't be judged. You won't be made fun of because you're going to be talking to people that are in the same position. Eric, that is such a profound, sounds like a conclusion to this interview. And I've been rushing you through everything. And now we've got a couple of extra minutes. So we'll have to hold that feeling of the grand conclusion. Because I do want to ask you about your service. You said you were in Desert Storm. You were in Kuwait or somewhere there. Tell us about that, because isn't that one of our recent examples of a very successful mission for the United States military? Right. Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I was there. I was actually stationed in Turkey. I was in logistics supply. I was with the 39th Tactical Fighter Group over there. And Turkey, of course, was a major player in the uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Afterwards, we also did all the missions to Northern Watch and all that. But absolutely, it. anytime you're in a theater, anytime you go from a time of peace to a time of stress, things are going to, to rear their ugly heads, so to speak. And even though we were removed, if you will, from Iraq, we still had Scud missiles being fired at us. We still had Patriot missiles being fired at Scud missiles. We still had stuff of that nature that was going on during that time. Yes, it was a successful operation. Excuse me for one second. We need to remind people what that mission was. It was because Iraq invaded Kuwait. Right, invaded Kuwait. That's correct. They invaded Kuwait. They invaded a sovereign nation. And, you know, at what point in time do you say you can't go and invade a sovereign nation? So Saddam Hussein and the ruling party of, of Iraq decided to go and invade without provocation a sovereign country. The United States is where many, many, many coalition partners decided that that's just not going not to happen. So within the matter of just hours, 48 hours, once actually Operation Desert Storm started, the Iraqis were out of Kuwait and they were what was left of them was retreating quickly back to Baghdad. Unfortunately, for a lot of them, they met their untimely demise, and the mission was successful. I think there's a lot of people out there, and I try and stay out of politics, but there's a lot of people out there that feel that President Bush, the elder, stopped that operation too soon. I will say, based on people that were there, based on photos I've seen, videos I've seen, that it was proper timing to stop that operation. Once the enemy becomes battle ineffective, and they quickly became battle ineffective, the offensive operations need to stop. And that was very successful. And again, there, even though that was now, it's hard to believe, well over 30 years ago, there's still individuals out there that are hurting. There's still individuals out there that are dealing with the residual effects of burn pits, stuff of that nature. There's still individuals out there that are trying to deal with all this. So again, to all my veterans out there, Happy Veterans Day. Again, you're not alone. Reach out if you have any assistance, if need any assistance or need any help. And thank you again for your service. My guest today, Eric Stanton, 32-year military veteran in service to the Constitution of this country. My honor and privilege. And more than just thank you for your service, I am in awe and in deep gratitude and respect for what you have done and what other veterans do on this Veterans Day week. Thank you very much once again, Eric Stanton.
Thank you to the listeners for tuning in to this conversation. You can hear this conversation Wednesdays at six, Sundays at two. You can find podcasts. If you Google WEHC and this conversation, it should come up or go to the archives, wehcfm.com. Thanks again, and please stay tuned to 90.7.